Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are in this series uh, called Where Does Your Loyalty Lead? And we're kind of walking through the book of Ruth. And last week, Alex did an awesome job of opening it up and kind of introducing, giving us a good overview of the book of Ruth and and really cool and uh, tying together some cool parallels between uh, the Abraham's life and Ruth's life and just kind of pulling those things together, which was really cool. If you missed last week, make sure you jump online, rlcpullman.com, and grab the sermon from last week. You can listen to it or watch it, whatever works for your life and schedule and style. Um, This week, we're going to be jumping into Ruth chapter 2. And one of the things that he mentioned last week that I think is really important that we kind of keep coming back to and remembering, keep it in our uh, understanding as we go through the story of Ruth is that the, the story of Ruth, the events in this book took place in a time in Israel's history that was known as the time of Judges. And this was not a good time to uh, be uh, a God-fearing person. It wasn't a good time for anybody. This was a pretty tragic, horrific time in the history of Israel. And the end of the book of Judges sums it up pretty well. It says that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And I think we've seen a fair amount of that over the last year in little pockets. We've seen what it looks like when everybody does what they think is the right. Like when everybody just sort of like forgets the law of the land, forgets all authority and just does what they want to do, it looks pretty ugly and messy and unsafe. And that's very much the case for the way things were in the time of Israel when this uh, events of the book of Ruth took place. It was not a time where there was a lot of security or stability for God's people. And so with that in mind, uh, let's jump in. All right. So the beginning of Ruth chapter two starts off with this simple little statement between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth chapter two, verse two says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone uh, in whose eyes I find favor. So you've got Ruth and Naomi, both widows. Uh, Naomi, the older, is uh, a local now. They're back in her hometown. And Ruth is an outsider or a foreigner. Neither of them have any land. Neither of them have jobs. They're wholly and exclusively dependent on the charity of the people around them. And if you remember the context, like the time that was going on, a time where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, does not bring to mind the idea that there's going to be an abundance of charity when everybody's sort of looking out for themselves. And yet that's the circumstances. And, and Naomi, uh, or Ruth, excuse me, she's, she's so motivated to care for Naomi that she's willing to go out and, and, and beg and glean and work to try and figure out if there's any way to provide for them. It's almost as if you could hear in her voice, like the idea of going like, I know this is risky. I know I'm going to be putting myself in harm's way. And, and if things go good, it's still going to be a bunch of hard work, but I've got to do something. I've got to try anything. Like we can't go another day without dinner. 
It's like that kind of desperation almost. Like I'm going to go and I'm going to try and see if I can glean in a field. I'm going to see if I can like scrape up any leftovers out there anywhere. I don't know if anybody will even see me or notice me or if anybody will even care, but I've got to at least try. And the thing that she would have been very well aware of, but a lot of us are pretty disconnected from, is the fact that not only was she a widowed woman, making herself pretty vulnerable to go out into the fields amongst the workers, but she was an outsider, a foreigner from an outside place, and it would have been obvious. And and as an outsider and a widowed woman, she was extraordinarily vulnerable, at risk of abuse and hard things. But she was willing to go. One of the things we know about Ruth all the way through her story is that her loyalty, her commitment to Naomi and to to family is so high that even if she's not sure how it's going to pan out, one thing Ruth is big on is I'm just going to try if she doesn't know the outcome or not. And we see that happening over and over throughout the story. Now, one of the things that I don't think there's really any way of us knowing is if Ruth knew about the, uh, the laws that God had put in place for people to be able to glean in the fields. I don't know if she knew that or if she just sort of knew from watching and observing the people like, hey, when I got here, what I saw is that poor people do this. They all sort of go here. And so maybe she just thought, this is what I'll do because this is what all the other people do who are in our circumstances. A little bit like you go to a big city and you always sort of see the the same panhandlers on the same corners. And if they're not there, there's always somebody that's like, that's the good spot. And it's like, there's no real rule that says you have to panhandle there. It just sort of means, it sort of is like the the one guy sees the last guy and goes, well, this is just what you do. And maybe that's how she came to learn about the idea of gleaning. But what's interesting, and I think it's really, really important for us to remember, is that this idea of gleaning in the fields, allowing poor people or people in need to come into the field and pick up after the harvesters have gone through, it wasn't just something that some nice farmers did. It wasn't something that some people that just had a lot of abundance did. It was actually a law that God gave Moses to give to his people. It shows up in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. I want to read it from the book of Deuteronomy so that we kind of have this law fresh in our mind so we know what God had in mind when it came to this kind of situation. In Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21, it says, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the uh, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so this law was a, a really good way for God's people to actually put into practice, love your neighbor as yourself. There was also something really important uh, about the intent of this law. Like God wanted to make sure not only did did his people uh, look out for others, but it would tie them back to some important memories. The idea that they weren't always uh, able to have their own land and their own crops. At one time, they were slaves in Egypt. 
They couldn't provide for themselves. They were utterly dependent on someone else for their very livelihood. And then later on in their journey, they were actually foreigners in a distant land, in a foreign country, a different culture. And and, and again, they experienced what is it like to be a, a group of people that doesn't fit, that doesn't belong. And so God instituted laws that were absolutely designed to remind his people like, hey, once you needed this kind of charity, once you were looked at like you were an outsider or a foreigner or someone who didn't fit. And this is the way I want you to treat other people. And here's the thing I think it's important to remember about this law. This wasn't like uh, Moses uh, was given this law and it was like, hey, for the next 10 years, or for the next 10 generations, follow these instructions. This, the heart and the intent of this is this is a for good. Like as long as you're God's people, it is God's heart and desire so much so that it, 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 he laid it out like an absolute rule. You, if you're God's people, you look out for people who are outsiders. You look out for widows. You look out for orphans. And so I think it's a pretty fun thing. And and. It's really cool to see how this story comes together. And I think one of the things that's, that's really cool about the book of Ruth and the, the way that this story unfolds is the characters that are involved. The fact that the people who are involved in this story are really nobody special. In the grand scheme of things, these are not A-listers. These are just regular people like most of us. And, and the fact that, that they, the characters in this story and the events in this uh, account, the fact that they loved God the way that they loved God, they had such deep loyalty and commitment to one another the way that they did, they lived out their faith in such a practical, real way in such huge contrast to the wickedness going on in the world around them, all the selfishness and that everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, the way they lived stood out like radically different, so much so that I think God went out of his way to go, those are stories that need to never be forgotten. And so here we have the book of Ruth kind of immortalized in the scriptures. I mean, here we are thousands of years later learning from their examples. From examples of people that that loved God and loved each other and put it into practice in their everyday life in such a way that they stuck out like a sore thumb compared to everything else going on around them. I think maybe there's still some lessons to be learned from these stories. So, Let's jump in here. Um, well, actually, before we get to that, um, about uh, the gleaning and, and the laws from Levit- Leviticus and Deuteronomy, one of the things I wanted to mention is that one of the things that's really cool about these laws is that they do something pretty cool in regards to how they preserve the dignity of people in need. Um, these laws, the way they're established, people still work hard for their provision. It, and, and it's a lot different than a lot of the social programs and the different things that are available to people in our world right now. A lot of the things that are available for people in the world right now who are in need uh, create a, a dependency on the handout. And then they actually make rules that 
that sort of make it really difficult for people to kind of get off of it or start working because it's like, well, you can make this little money to get this help. But if you actually start working for yourself and make a little bit of extra money to try and squeak ahead, your, your assistance goes away because now you make too much money. And so they're incentivized to not go and work for it. Not because a lot of times, very often, not because people are lazy, like they, they would much rather work and make a little more, but they get stuck in this conundrum. The other thing that some of the social programs do in the culture right now is they do the opposite of preserving people's dignity. They actually like humiliate people, sort of, I'm not saying on purpose, but just the way the processes are set up. It's like, how difficult is it to get to the point where you have to go and tell someone you don't know that you're so broke you can't feed your kids. I don't care who you are or what's happened. That's a hard conversation. And to have to go that, and then the response is, here's a bunch of paperwork to fill out to prove that you're poor. Like, we actually won't take your word for it. You have to justify. It's like, Talk about kick a dog when they're down. And I understand why stuff is the way it is. And I understand some of the complications that go on with it. But it's like, it's such a challenging thing. And so one of the things I just wanted you guys to know as a church is that we're in the process of kind of revamping our Lifelines ministry. And for those of you that don't know, Lifelines in our church is a ministry that kind of overarches. It includes things like where we provide financial assistance for people, kind of emergency rental assistance or electricity. Sometimes we get into a car repair if somebody needs that to get to work. Like we're pretty creative at the types of things that we do to try and help people as we can. Uh, It also covers things like counseling that we provide for people. Um, It will provide things like financial counseling. And so when it comes to our Lifelines ministry, one of the things we're doing is we're trying to kind of revamp it so that it's more in line with this idea of helping preserve people's dignity when they're in need. And so some of the cool ways we're able to do that is with the new building, we'll have a lot more things that need done. Now, some people may look at it and go, okay, from a day-to-day operational standpoint, like the way we're at right now, we've got a small little office in, in Pullman, and we all work out of it, and we don't have a whole bunch of space, but it also doesn't take a lot of overhead. Like, it's pretty, pretty simple to maintain one little office. Now we're going to have a big old building. We're going to figure out how to mow the lawn, how to get the, the toilets cleaned. I mean, who's going to do janitor stuff? Who's going to wash windows? Who's going to sweep? Who's going to set up for events? Who's going to tear down for events? Who's going to cook for that thing? For this? Like all kinds of stuff. And on the one hand, you might be like, man, we're committing to all this extra work. Like, is it really worth it? And I look at it and go, man, what's, what it's doing for us is it's creating all kinds of amazing opportunities for us to actually engage people that are in need in our community and need help and, and encourage them to work some for their provision and preserve their dignity. They're not just coming for a handout. They're coming to actually pitch in and participate and give back and use their gifts and talents in a way that helps them provide for themselves. And so that for that, I'm pretty excited about it. And so... Um, the thing that I think probably most people are aware of is over this next year, there's going to continue to be more and more people in need in our community. Not only because we're going to be way more visible, 
We're going to have, you know, big building on the, one of the main streets in town. And so everybody's going to be more aware that we're here still all the time. I talk to people that don't know real life as a church in Pullman. They're like, I think you guys have one in Moscow. Is that the thing from Post Falls? I'm like, it's also the one that's been like 12 years here in Pullman. Really? Where do you guys meet? I just had a conversation with somebody the other day, three weeks ago. Are you guys meeting in person? Yep. Right? Like it's, it's like just being sort of in the shadow a little bit. It's not as obvious. And so as we get out on the main street, we're going to have a lot more people aware of where we're at and in need. And with what's going on in the economy and inflation and some of the crazy stuff going on, there's going to be more people in need in our community. And what that means for us is that we have a ton more opportunities to love and serve people to build a relationship, to introduce them to a good God that cares about their needs. And so that ministry, Lifeline's ministry, is going to need to grow because in order to increase our capacity to serve more people, connect with more people in a way that we care, like a relational way and care about them, we need more people involved in that ministry. And so if, as I'm talking about this, this kind of like, you know, catches your heart a little bit. You're like, that's the kind of stuff I want to be involved in. That's the sort of thing I care about. That's the sort of stuff I want to sacrifice time and energy to be a part of. Then we need you to let us know that you want to be a part of that ministry. And so in your sermon notes, right underneath the Deuteronomy passage, there's a little uh, blurb in there that says, uh, about this ministry. And what we need you to do is we need you to shoot us an email at lifelines at rlcpullman.com. And if you're interested, we need you to let us know your contact info and how, make sure we know how to get a hold of you. And then just a little bit about why you're interested in being a part of that ministry. Uh, what I know is that people who are going to be a part of this are going to be willing to adjust their schedule a little bit, adjust life and, and take time and energy to be involved in it are the same kind of people that will take the time and energy to shoot us an email, right? I had a really cool email joke in first service and it was <laughs> bombed. Like one person laughed at it and it was Kayla. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. It doesn't count. <laughs> Third time is not a charm with that one. Some jokes just need to die. It, you know, it always sounds good in my head and then I get here. So uh, back to Israel in the time of judges. All right, let's jump back in there. So Here's what is, it, it, the other thing that's going on is that these were pretty difficult times. And so one of the things I want you to understand is that there are reports uh, that in some of the commentaries and some of the uh, historical context stuff, studying about those times, that would tell us that the very opposite of people allowing people to glean in their fields, allowing leaving extra behind for poor, uh, the opposite was happening. A lot of the farms at the time looked like for us in a modern world what we would describe as like a giant community garden except on a much bigger scale. But if you kind of picture that type of uh, format, and then the rows between people's actual property would have been something as simple as just little rock piles. And, and so as the Smiths are on this side and, you know, the, the whatever, you get it. Um, and so what was happening is that throughout the time while they were farming, some of them, rather than leaving behind extra for people to glean, they would move the rock piles over a little bit each day. So they're actually trying to take more from their neighbor as opposed to leave behind for the poor. And I think that's why 
the rest of this story sticks out in such uh, just vivid contrast compared to what was going on in the world. I think it has a lot to do with why God saw it to be so important that this story was remembered and these people were remembered. So Ruth chapter two, verse three through nine says, so she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was uh, from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and, uh, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. So we see this, uh, this first example of Boaz when he sees Ruth, he doesn't know who she is by sight. Like he, he didn't recognize her. Right, And so he asked the overseer, like the foreman of the laborers out there. So he, he calls his foreman over, hey, who's the new lady out there? And, and what I think is really cool, there's this fun little nugget in here, I think. The way that the foreman answers the question shows almost this degree of respect for Naomi. You can just sort of hear it in, a, in the tone of how he answers like, oh, her? That's Ruth. She is the one that came back from Moab with Naomi. And you know the cool thing about her? Like, it really impressed me. Before she went into the field to glean, she actually came up and asked me permission. And so I told her to go ahead and go behind our gals out there that are gleaning. And so she went out there, and man, oh man, does she ever work. She's been working her tail off all day except for one little break she took in the middle of the day. You can just kind of hear this air of like, Something about her sticks out. For someone that has just this tiny interaction with her, the way he talked about her, he, he, he could have said any number of things about her, but the way he talked about her has this level of respect. I just think it's pretty, pretty interesting that the way Ruth was just so loyal to Naomi how much that bled over into the way people saw her in a good way. It's also the first place that we get to see a little bit about Boaz. And we see how he interacts with his workers as a boss, right? He shows up, first thing out of his mouth isn't, how much have you guys got done? Who's doing it right? What went wrong? You know, like a lot of times a boss comes up on a big job with a bunch of workers. It's like, hey, where's all the problems? What's gone wrong, Right? What did I miss? What do I need to fix? Right? First thing out of his mouth, Lord bless you. He blesses them. And then he goes on to have this exchange with Naomi or with Ruth. And when he talks to her, he, he just, the way he talks to her, he has such deep respect for her, like a, a, like a, a dad that is looking out for one of his daughters. He's like, hey, here's the deal. Don't go anywhere else. First of all, don't go anywhere else. I, you, you could maybe end up in somebody else's field, but I would have no way of knowing if you're going to be okay. 
These are pretty difficult times. You need to stay here. Stay with my workers. Wherever the guys are harvesting, keep your eyes on them. If they switch fields or go to a different place, you follow them. Wherever they go, you go. And, and I want you to take a deep breath and be able to relax. I've told them to make sure they keep their hands off you. You can let your guard down. It's okay. If you're thirsty, walk right up to the jar that they got from the well and drink. And I think the way that he treated her helps us understand why she responds the way she does to him. Let's take a look at how she responds. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says that this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with people that you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I think this is where we get to see this little tender bit of transparency from Ruth. She's, she's like, what have I done to deserve this? And, and, and the words that she uses, don't you know I'm a foreigner? It, it sort of tips us off to what she's really thinking about herself how she sees herself there. She's, it's almost as if she's like, don't you understand? Like, look around. I don't look like everybody else. Like, look around. Like, it, everybody knows I don't belong here. I don't fit in here. And much less, I've, I've been widowed. Like, I've got nothing and I've done nothing to you. Why? Why would you be so kind to me? Like, she just, it's like one of those things, like, this does not compute. I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of generosity and care from somebody. It's wonderful and confusing all at the same time. And she's like, I don't get it. And here's something I think that we're getting a little bit of a snapshot into the life of Ruth and the heart of Ruth is like, there's something about she was so willing and so committed and so loyal to Naomi that she was willing to leave her land, leave her family, leave her religious background to go to a land where she was not from, where she was knew she was going to be an outsider and commit to follow the God of Naomi. But there was something going on, like there's something different about knowing God and really believing that God knows you. And I think we're seeing this like point in Naomi's life where God is doing some amazing Jesus-y stuff through Boaz. And he's trying to communicate to her like, yeah, I know how loyal you are how you've even been loyal to me, how you know me, how you believe in me, how you've committed to follow and care for your mother-in-law. And I get that you have like said it and intellectually you've chosen this way. You've chosen me, but I need you to know that like I actually knew about you long before. 
And through Boaz, he's telling her, like, I, I already knew. I, I've heard all about you. I know what you did. I know where you're from. I, I know what happened. I know what brought you here. And oh, by the way, you need to know that you belong. Like, stay here. Don't go anywhere else. Like, you have found your fit. This is the place where you belong. Stick with me. Stick with us. You're going to be safe here. You're going to be cared for. You're going to be fed. You're going to have uh, water. You're going to look like I'll meet your needs. Stay here. And, and she's just like, this is amazing and awesome, and it seems too good to be true. And I just think that I think that when I read Ruth and I read about this story, it just always stirs my heart to wonder like how many other people are there like Ruth who know God, have put their faith in Jesus, have got baptized, they've committed to follow Christ, but they don't really know that they belong to God, that they fit. They don't really know and understand yet how much God knows them. They're like, they're like I believe in God, but I still don't feel like I fit in. And I can tell you, this happens a lot in the world that we live in. The way that people try to, um, not try, the way that people begin to sort of assimilate uh, as a Christian and understand a lot about who God thinks they uh, thinks about them and what God thinks about them and who God says they are is through community and church and small groups and studies and the different things that that what it looks like to fellowship with other Christians. But what happens a lot is people go, I, I believe in God. And then they come to church and they're like, but I don't feel like I fit in here. I, I went through this for a long time. I, most of you know I didn't grow up in church, and so when I later in life committed to follow God with all my heart, I, I later learned in hindsight that committing to follow God, getting baptized, going all in to follow Jesus, that was the easy part. Trying to figure out how to be a Christian with other Christians was a different part, because it was like going to a foreign land where they spoke sto- a language that I didn't understand. They, they talked about stories that I had no reference for, I had no context, all the time feeling like I was walking in on the middle of an inside joke, but I didn't know the story, and just feeling out of place. Like I'm always interrupting a conversation that I don't understand, I don't get the background for a long time and then and then worship singing songs like goodness the first church i ever went to had hymnals and uh they'd open up the thing and it was like turn to page 27 section three boys do b7 part 923 hut hut hike and i'm like what was that a page number i was so confused and then I don't know if anybody else does this, but confusion immediately led to embarrassment. Because as I'm fumbling through this, like already I'm like singing out loud in front of people's weird, and I don't know what you're singing about, and the person did something different over here than that person, and then I'm just like, I start to get self-conscious that everybody knows that I don't know that I'm not supposed to fit here, and I don't belong, and then I just kind of do what I did in choir class to get through in high school, and I just mouth the words watermelon, Somebody told me that genius thing in, in choir, that if you mouth the word watermelon, it looks like every word is right. 
I passed choir. Just saying. It's probably why I'm not a very good singer today. But I just wonder how many of you, how many people in your family, how many people do you know, really know God? Like, like it's not about whether or not you have put your faith in Christ, whether or not you believe God is real, but you still just don't feel like you fit in when it comes to this whole Christian family thing. You feel like an outsider, like Ruth, like you don't belong. Paul wrote some pretty awesome words to new believers in churches in Galatia that I think are important for us to remember and important for us to kind of reflect on. This was a land that was a long ways away from Israel. Uh, The culture was very different. The religious backgrounds of these people was quite different than uh, the Israelites and the Jewish faith. And, And the God of the Jews invites everybody in to follow the, the one true God. And so you've got these people that all of a sudden feel like uh, we're trying to sign up, we're trying to join up with this religious organization, this group of, of God-fearing men and women, and we, we believe that their God is real, but boy, do we feel weird like we don't know what's going on. We don't know the stories. We don't have the history. We don't have the, like, are you sure this is the right thing? And there was a lot of confusion. And Paul writes to all these scattered churches throughout Galatia to sort of say to them, like, wait, 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 wait. before we get too far off track, you need to remember this. And he says these words to him in Galatians uh, 3, 26 through 29. He says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now, contrary to what you could have heard about this passage, there are a lot of uh, people radically taking this passage out of context and trying to make it say crazy stuff about gender that it absolutely is not intended to say. I don't know if you know, but there's weird stuff going on about gender stuff in the world right now. And people try to say that, well, then when you become saved, it means that there's no gender anymore. You're just all one. Like we're just some more amalgamous, weird one thing. And it's like, what? I got news for you. Paul was not saying boys won't be boys when they become Christians. Paul was saying, I don't care if you're from Galatia or Israel. I don't care if your skin is black or white or yellow or green or you spoke Spanish or you spoke Italian or you're a man or a woman or an old guy or a little girl. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become a child of God. And you are adopted in to a family of God. You are an heir to the promise of Abraham. Like you just got an inheritance that you never knew you had coming. He's like, you belong. He, he, the same thing that, that Ruth was experiencing through Boaz. You belong. You fit in. God sees you. God cares about you. And you're invited to be in the family. And I just, I think about, 
I think about how many people there are that believe in God, but can't or have had weird experiences with church and Christianity and community. One of the things I think is interesting is one of the questions I ask uh, just about anybody new I ever meet is at some point I try to ask them, what's your God story? And I can tell you 999.9 times out of a thousand, every single person always tells me a church story. When I say generically, what's your God story? People respond with their church experience. And so I just keep wondering, like, how many people are there that, like, the media and culture would like you to believe that, like, people are not believing in God anymore. And I just don't think that's all that true. I think a lot of people believe in God. I think a lot of people don't understand how to fit into God's family. They don't feel like they fit. They didn't grow up the right way. They don't know the right stories. They don't have the right history. They feel like an outsider that came to the party late. And I wonder, what would it be like if we had a whole church full of people who were just like Boaz? What if our entire church, everybody that met us, had a Boaz-type experience with the way that we treated them? that we help people feel like they were welcome and invited in and included and, and, and meant to be here, not an afterthought, like looked out for. Like how much different would our church be, the, the kind of community that would build? How much different would our community be if you unleashed an army of Boaz kind of people? And so that's what I want to do to wrap up. I want to give us a challenge. Uh, I want to give us the Be Like Bo challenge. All right? So grab your sermon notes, because in your sermon notes, there is five ways to be like Bo. And if, if you're like a lot of us, we're going to go through these. And as we go through them, you may really feel like God kind of prompting your heart, or maybe God kicking you in the seat of your chair. Like, wait, that's the one you need. Pay attention to that one, right? Like, don't miss that. And you may, you may kind of sense that, but then you're going to leave here, and you have lunch, and then you forget. And so this is where you do the intentional don't forget thing. Like you write it down, you circle it, you make some marks on there. Like this one's important. I need to not miss this. So let's take a look at them. The five ways to be like Bo. Number one, Bo went out of his way to look for someone in need. This is something all of us can do. An eight-year-old can do this. Look for somebody in need, Okay. Number two, Bo asked God to reward Ruth for coming to him and putting her faith in him. I thought this was really cool. Like when Boaz met Ruth and, and he acknowledged, like, I know all the stuff you've done. I know I've heard everything. I've heard your story. And then he was like, I've heard your story. And, and what stirred out of him was, and what it makes me want to do, it makes me want to ask God to bless you richly because man, you have just impressed me so much. Like, the, your loyalty, like your commitment, like what a cool thing. And he actually stops like right in front of her and says, I'm asking God right now to just look out for you, to bless you, to, to stick up for you, right? Like how, what would it look like if somebody comes to your home group for the first time ever and you're like, man, I remember the first time I went to a group and sometimes it's really weird and I just got to say props to you and I am just praying 
that God really just makes you feel welcome and, and just loved and like, I'm just super proud of you. What if you said that to somebody you've never met that walked up to church? Like, I'm just super proud of, like, what a cool thing that I, like, of all the places in town I could have met you, I met you here. Like, that took some effort on your part. Way to go. Right? Let's look at the next one. Bo went out of his way to invite Ruth uh, in with the regulars and treat her like she was meant to be there. I love this because I always I worked with middle school students for a long time. I did a lot of school lunchroom cafeterias, and it's the especially in middle school, it's the classic case of like, man, you don't want to be the outside kid. You don't want to be the new kid or the one that's a little bit different or one that nobody wants to sit with. And and I remember thinking like the real noble thing that you would really elevate and be like, man, what a good kid is the kid that would leave their table and go and sit with the the kid that was by themselves. And in our culture, we're sort of like, man, what a really nice person. What a right thing to do. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But if you want to be like Bo, you don't go and separate yourselves to sit with them. You go over to them and say, hey, guess what? You're one of us now. Right? And you invite them in. Like, you're not an outsider. Come and eat over here. You belong. Next one is, uh, Bo actually met her need for food by providing a way for her to gather it easily and even sent her home with lunch and uh, leftovers. Like, he just made it easy to try and provide help for her. Like, I think a lot of us, our natural inclination when we see people in need is we start to think through all the ways of if they deserve the help. I can't tell you how many times people have asked us with blessing beds, how do you qualify if the, if the family gets a bed? And I'm like, I know this will shock you, but it's actually remarkably simple. If the child is sleeping on the floor, we give him a bed. Yeah, but what if the parents could afford it and could buy him a bed? I don't know. That's between God and them. If there's a kid that needs a bed, and we can give them a bed, we just do. I don't know. I'll let God sort out the big screen TV problems. Right? Do we make it easy to provide for them? Uh, The last thing is, Bo offered to continue to help meet the needs of Ruth and Naomi for weeks and months ahead. And I think this is another cool thing that I just want to make sure we don't miss in this story. As he says, he's like, from now on, when you glean you stick with my harvesters. Like this was the barley harvest. This was the beginning of the harvest season. There was multiple harvests to come of different crops. And he's like, from here on out, like not just today, but he's like, don't go to any other fields. Stick with our team. And so he provides this way for her to continue to know that she's going to be provided for. So like a week from now, a day from now, 12 days from now, like she can take a breath and go like, Okay, I've, I, like, we're going to eat tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And all of a sudden, when your immediate needs you know are going to be helped out and met and there's a way to meet those needs, you can start to breathe and think about, like, what else do I need to think about in life? And so for us, when we're thinking about how to be like Bo and how to come alongside people and help them, like, what are ways where we can go beyond the immediate need? Like, sometimes that's the only opportunity we get. But being intentional about, like, what would it look like to meet that need for more than a minute? To give them enough of a breather to get their feet back under them 
and start worrying about other things. So those are some things for us to be thinking about uh, when it comes to being like Bo. Like unleashing an army of Boazes in Whitman County. How cool would that be? Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.